You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Deba, Zanna whispered. There was more rubbish than there had been a moment before. The black plastic and the can and the newspapers had been joined by greasy hamburger wrappers, a grocery bag, several apple cores and scrunched up clear plastic. The rubbish rustled. More rolled into view. Chicken bones, empty tubes of toothpaste, a milk carton. Debris blocked off the way they'd come. The rubbish was moving towards them. It was coming against the wind. As the girls began to creep backwards, it seemed as if the rubbish realised they were onto it, and it sped up. The cartons and cans rolled in their direction. The paper fluttered for them as madly as agitated butterflies. The plastic bags reached out their handles and scrambled towards the girls, who screamed and ran. They heard the manic, wet rustle of predatory rubbish. China Mieville is the author of the novels King Rat, Perdido Street Station, The Scar, and Iron Council, and the short story collection Looking for Jake. His new novel for younger readers is Unlundone. Thank you for joining us, China. Thank you for having me. China, this is a really wonderful novel. I have to admit that when I first heard you are writing a novel for younger readers, I was a little bit skeptical because some of the stuff I really liked about your novels, Perdido Street Station, Scar, Iron Council, was how far over the top you went. And one of the things I think you've managed to do successfully is to go equally far over the top in your new novel, <laughs> but still make it appropriate for younger readers. And and I wondered if you'd like to discuss that. Well, I mean, thank you. I'm very glad you think so. I mean, certainly when I started writing on London, I was I was quite nervous because I knew, I'd always known that I wanted to write a novel for younger readers. I wanted to write a novel essentially for my sort of 10, 11-year-old self. But I'd never done it, so I was quite nervous as to whether or not I'd be able to. And in terms of the kind of going over the top thing, that was that was a pleasure as it always is. I mean, I never have any problem kind of thinking up sort of strange situations and grotesqueries and monsters and all of that. I was concerned about, you know, whether I would be able to do the language, whether, you know, because some of my adult fiction has quite sort of baroque and opaque language in places, and I didn't know whether I could do that. And so I, w- I was, cer- and, and also there's a slightly different sense of the fantastic with more of a kind of indulgence on kind of wordplay and you know punning and that kind of thing so there's no question that I was I was quite nervous about it but I I sort of took two weeks as an experiment and decided I would I would take stock at the end of two weeks and see if I if I liked what I'd been doing and um it it came quite quickly I, I was writing it quite fast which is normally for me is quite a good sign I tend to write in quite concentrated bursts and so I continued and uh, when it was done I you know I, I will admit when it was done I I gave it to my 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 publisher and my um my friends with with a great deal of trepidation but the response was was mostly very good. Tell us a little bit about uh, give us an idea of how the novel works what what we're getting into here when what is unlondon. Well it's a very it's a very very classic shape of a novel in 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 many respects although in others I hope it has a kind of uh, affectionate argumentative relationship with certain classic ideas but um basically you know, when I was uh, as as a, as a younger reader, I mean, what what I I was I loved and was obsessed with was stories about you know um, children from our world falling down rabbit holes or walking through the mirror or pushing at the back of wardrobes, you know, and 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 going into a a fantastic world. And so I wanted to do uh, uh, you know something that was both a homage to those books and also one of those books, you know, was just part of that tradition. Um, and so what it is, it is about two two um, young girls from London who find their way into a, into a sort of a kind of grungy, fantastic world, which is called Unlondon. Um, and and th- it turns out that all the cities of our world have what is called an ab city, which is a kind of sort of a, a kind of twisted magical reflection. So London has Unlondon, Paris has Parisn't, Baghdad has Bagdidn't. Um, we're doing this uh, interview in San Francisco. You know, there's, you know, it's 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 this kind of punning fantasy thing, um, uh, and so basically the story revolves them falling into Unlondon and then discovering that there's a great threat. There are certain monsters and trying both to get out and to uh, neutralize that threat. 
Um, I love this idea of the secret place novels, you know, these hidden secret worlds that are accessible only to the, the children. One of the things you do well with this book is the fantastic creeps into our world first. And I wonder if you care to talk about, is that how you got yourself into the world? You, you said that this wasn't something that was easy for you to write. Well, it was it was it was easy well easy is maybe too strong but it wasn't that difficult for me to write it was more a question that i was very nervous about it mm-hmm. you know um no i mean the shape of the novel changed a few times i mean i knew that you know the bulk of it was going to be set in this you know fantasy world this un london um but i wanted i i wanted to have that kind of intrusion of the fantastic into our world first um for for several reasons i mean one was simply to be tantalizing and one was because if you do that, I wanted to kind of neutralize the notion that the whole kind of un-London setting, um, you know, it was all a dream, you know, um, because I, I never much liked that. E- even even the Alice books, which I love passionately, you know, um, the idea that the kind of get-out clause for the fantasy, which is that actually it was just a dream, um, always sort of slightly disappointed me and so by having an intrusion of the fantastic into our world before anything else just a little bit just just enough to kind of give you a hopefully give you a free song it kind of the idea was to make it so that there's a kind of um inevitable kind of seriousness about what's going on sort of you know morally and so on that this actually matters you know that this isn't just you know one of our protagonists isn't going to have turn out to have just fallen asleep and have dreamed all this. You know, this is really happening in this world and there are real consequences. One thing about this book, it, it follows the nature of your your other fantasies, if I can call them that. Uh, it's very urban and, and lots of fantasy and children's fantasy as well is kind of rural. There's, you know, rolling fields and caves and pretty places. There's none of that here. Tell me a little bit about no, that. No, there's not. But I mean, at the same time, I think, um, I mean, certainly what that that is, you know, I mean, you're right. I'm a very kind of, um, in inverted commas, an urban writer. I mean, uh, cities are very important to me and very kind of inspirational to me. But I think that, I mean, while it while it may be true that there's a reasonable number of, you know, younger sort of fantasies for, for younger readers that, that, are, that, are, that aren't, you know, that are more kind of rural, there are plenty that aren't. And I think, you know, I mean, for example... Um, Philip Pullman's trilogy, you know, um, the kind of fantasticated Oxford of uh, of um, of the first of those books is is a you know an incredibly vivid urban setting. You know, it's not quite the same kind of urbanness as as I do, but it's you know that that kind of the, the city of spires is absolutely central to it. I think about something like uh, Philip Reeve's book, uh, Mortal Engines. You know, one of my favourite books of the last few years. Fantastic book. Um, that's, it's all about cities. It's kind of, it's kind of, camply about cities. It has cities as you know as protagonists that run around eating each other. You know, I mean, it's completely city based. So while it's true that you know um, cities are very important to me, I, I would I would be hesitant of claiming that I was doing anything you know massively new there. You know, and equally, I think that you know the flip side of that is. If you have a reputation as a as a writer who's interested in something, people will tend to focus on that. So that, you know, for me, you know, Iron Council, for example, my last adult novel, was I think you know at least half of it, if not more, took place outside cities and was all about kind of wilderness landscapes and so on. But people very rarely talk about that. They always they they still talk about you know how much I'm an urban writer because I had a reputation for being very interested in cities. Um, and, you know, I don't mind that, but I, I do think there's a danger of a kind, you know, sort of self-replicating some of these uh, these ideas, you know, and, and actually don't necessarily always jibe with the way things are. But this one, yes, very, very urban. You mentioned the the Pullman books as, as uh, examples. You also, in the front of this book, mentioned a couple of your influences that I think are not well known within the United States, and I wanted to, to talk about those. Um, Michael Larab, you know it. Michael Larabetti. You know, yes. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that. Because, well, he, um, he wrote a series of books. He's written many books, but he wrote a, a trilogy of books for, for children called the Borable Trilogy, which is the Borables, the Borables Go for Broke, and Across the Dark Metropolis that were out of um, print for many years and have recently, I think about three, four years ago, were brought back into print in a collected volume. Um, And they're um, uh, a fantastic series of 
of of books, which basically the the, the idea is that it's set in London. It's mostly in the seventies, which is when they were written, um, and it's a very kind of sort of gritty, dark, uh, you know, in inverted commas, realistic London. Except that in this world, um, if children run away from home and live on the streets they turn into a kind of feral elf where you, you, their ears become pointed and they, they never grow old. So they're kind of like Peter Pan, but a kind of um, uh, a ruder version that steals from markets and you know wears ripped jeans and so on. Um, and these books were um, massively influential on me and I just thought they were completely outstanding um, children's books. And I, I feel in, in one way... Although they have, you know, a, a, they're very respected, but I think in some ways they were too ahead of their time. I feel like if those books had been written five years ago, I think they would have been, you know, considered absolute modern classics. And it, I'm always, you know, I think they deserve to, I think they deserve to be. I think they are classics of children's fiction, and I hope more people will read them. The other author who has seen been published for a while in uh, the UK and is just now seen publication in the United States is Walter Moore's. Yeah, and and I love those books, Captain Blueberry. It's mm. just so outstanding, very reminiscent of, of Stanislaw Lem's kind mm. of books. Tell us a little bit about them. Well, he Walter Moore's books aren't, they weren't books from my childhood in the same way that you know Lewis Carroll and Delara Beatty and so on were, because his books only came out in England in the last few years. He's a German writer, and they 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 were translated. He's quite a well known German in Germany. He's well known as a as a writer and as a, a as a comic strip artist and as an illustrator. And his, he has, I think, three books now that are set in this kind of wild, fantastic um, realm. And, and the first of them, and my favourite, is called The Thirteen and a Half Lives of, a, of Captain Blue Bear. And it's a huge, very sprawling sort of romp through a very strange sort of fantasy landscape, kind of going from episode to episode, weird things happening to this uh, this little this um, rather adorable, very swashbuckling little blue bear. Um, and the thing that really interested me about Walter Moser's work was there were two things. One was this kind of incredible joy of uh, just the kind of, you know, the sort of epic storytelling romp. There's just, you know, it kind of... Romp sometimes sounds like it's a kind of backhanded compliment. I really mean it in this case. There's, uh, there's no denigration there. He just has an incredible pleasure in telling this extraordinary story that goes through all these amazing, ludicrous byways. And the other thing is that he, he illustrates his own books, and I, I really love his illustrations. He does very kind of strong-lined uh, black-and-white pen-and-ink illustrations, um, which I, I think are beautiful. And I, I'm very interested in illustrated books. Unlandun is the first book I've done that I've I've done my own illustrations for. The, the book is illustrated by me. Um, and so I, I got very interested in that whole question of the, the relationship between illustrations and text and so on and was looking at a lot of the kind of classic illustrations and Moers seems to me to be a, a you know something of a modern classic I hope I, I think in 25 years time I suspect that it'll I hope and suspect that it'll be considered a you know a, a recent classic let's talk a little bit about the character the child characters in Unlandon. One of the things you do that I really liked at the beginning was you fight against this um, tradition of there always being like the, a really bad peer group that, that really dislikes your main characters. Your main characters are, are pretty well adjusted at the beginning. There's a, tell us a little bit about that. Do you know what? I'm, I'm so glad you say that and I'm really glad you, you sort of um, focused on that because you're absolutely right. I mean, it seems to me that there are certain things which come up again and again in in particularly fantasy books such as you know uncaring parents uh you know parents that don't really understand their children a child who is kind of bowed down by a kind of grubby reality that doesn't appreciate them uh you know the the, the kind of the cruelty of peer groups as you say in school and I didn't want to do any of those things and I you know I make no judgments I mean there are some great books that do use those but particularly for example the peer group thing I think there's an awful lot about sort of quite how awful you know children can be to each other and you know the cruelty of peer groups and so on and and I'm not I'm not even necessarily saying that that's untrue I mean there are you know obviously there are cliques and they can be horrible but there seem there's something rather that, that I, I sort of feel like in a way it, it can be rather despairing of children in rather a nasty way and, and, and that there's not enough talked about, 
you know, children who, 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 who just get on and are nice to each other. And that, as you say, there's not particularly a problem. And I think that's quite, that's quite important. And, um, you know, similarly, one of the things I very much liked about uh, Coraline, Neil Gaiman's book Coraline, is that um, the, Coraline's parents... They're not bad people. They're not neglecting her. You know, there's no there's no sense that this is an escape into a fantasy world, which, you know, seems to me to be a very backhanded way of dealing with the fantastic. And I just wanted to think about, you know, I wanted to have a I wanted this to be a book that quite likes people. You know, this is a book that thinks people are basically pretty decent most of the time. And that includes young people, you know. So um, I'm really glad you, I'm really glad you said that. One of the things that interests me is the the what what we're going to talk when we talk about this book I, I do want to say that we're going to talk about if you want to remain totally fresh I recommend you read this book immediately and then come back and listen to the interview and enjoy the right. the insights of the author but we're going to discuss some aspects of things that occur farther into the text and I want to let the listeners know that not to give any spoilers but again yeah. totally fresh one of the things that's interesting in this book is the relationship between the two main characters that we meet at first, Xana uh, and, and Deba. Tell us a little bit about uh, when you were doing in the creative process doing this, it, it feels like you discovered something happening here. Well, I'd always known that, and, and as you say, this isn't exactly, you know, these aren't huge, huge spoilers, but, uh, you know, th this is, inevitably, this does discuss certain sort of twists and turns of the book. So I think the leader, reader should be, you know, sort of forewarned of that. But with that caveat, I mean, when I wrote this book, I always knew that I wanted to write something which had a sort of um, a relatively disrespectful or argumentative attitude to questions of um of fate and destiny um and you know that one of the classic figures is is the kind of the chosen one you know the one chosen by destiny to do certain things and the reason the reason that i wanted to be a, a bit argumentative about that is because as a as a as a as a very young reader i was always put off by books that involved a lot of stuff like that and that had characters who you know, were prophesied to be the kind of saviors of the land and so on, um, for for various reasons. I mean, one of them being that I I sort of felt if if something was written, if it was destined that this character was going to do certain things, then I kind of knew what was going to happen, and I didn't really find that terribly interesting. And the other was that I felt that it meant that their supporting characters, their friends, their sidekicks got rather condescended to by the narrative and they were you know not they weren't really treated as you know fully rounded characters they were they were supporting players and I and I always felt that was a bit disrespectful and I think partly because I I never really felt like you know like a chosen one I always felt more like a more like a sidekick you know and I always felt very sorry for people like you know like Velma and rather than Daphne and Scooby-Doo and you know all this you know the 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 the, the the sidekicks I felt got a got a kind of a hard hard time so in terms of those two characters I knew from quite early on that what I wanted to do was have uh you know a chosen one and her and her and her friend but then have a kind of you know a disrespectful relationship to the the ways that that might seem to conventionally play out and who does what and who ends up sort of you know saving the day and so on but at the same time I didn't want to get involved for similar reasons to what you were saying about the cliques, I didn't want to turn it into a kind of resentment thing. I mean, Deba genuinely loves Zana. They are, you know, it's not that it's not about a kind of the resentment of the of the friend of the sidekick. So I wanted to sort of look at an idea of you know, you know, people kind of pushed into situations that they hadn't planned on being in, and 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 sort of struggling to do to make the best of things because they're basic, you know, because they're decent people, you know. Um, and uh, and it was quite important to me that these two characters be genuine, sincere, close friends. It, one thing, it also, too, suggests this idea uh, that what we do matters, mm. that it's what we do. It's not where we start or, or what we're given at the beginning. It's really what we do that matters. And that's an interesting theme. Well, I mean, again, I wouldn't. I wouldn't sort of claim to be, you know, the first, <laughs> the first person saying this, uh, but, but, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I there 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 is a fair bit of, uh, you know, of children's fiction still which has, you know, the character who is the main character by virtue of their birth or by virtue of the fact that they have inherited magical powers or that they have, 
you know that you know that they come from a bloodline of this that and the other um and I, I, I just I just don't like that idea. And I, I, I prefer the idea of, you know, seeing what people who aren't chosen do. You know? <laughs> That's just more interesting to me. Part and parcel of any kind of fantasy like this are the fantastic characters. Uh, and, uh, that, and you have some really interesting fantastic characters in Unlondon once they enter the Ab City. I'd like you to talk about Obaday Fing, who's a really interesting character in a number of ways. Tell us a little well, bit about Obaday is a he's a he's essentially a kind of tailor and couturier. He he you know he designs clothes. Uh he he makes clothes out of books. Um he's always he, he has various different uh sort of from our perspective bizarre fashion ideas he mentions a few of them in passing um but the one he's working on at the moment is is uh, books made out of uh, sorry clothes made out of books um and his uh, his sort of fantastic shtick is that he as a as a as someone who you know works with fabric and so on he use he always needs pins and needles and and his his head is a pin cushion so he what looks at first like his hair is actually is actually a kind of plethora of of, of pins and needles sticking out and he he sort of takes them in, takes them out and sticks them in without any discomfort and so on and he you know is a character in this because he he, he makes friends with the main character and um is what i wanted to do was try and depict somebody who again is you know trying to do their best against you know nasty difficult you know evil situations um but is fundamentally something of a coward and is trying to you know, but not a bad, not a bad person by any means, and and is sort of struggling against their own innate fearfulness. So that's what that's what I just wanted to do with him. I also really liked um, the umbrellissimo, mm. and this this gets us into an aspect of your book. So I always enjoy, and a part of our conversations, I always enjoy. Let's talk about the monsters. <laughs> In the early passages of this book. You describe something. I, I'm. I was reading this book, and it's when they're still in the real world. You, you describe something crawling along the street and up the up the window, and I'm just thinking, "Oh my God, what is this horrific monster?" Tell us what it is and how you wrestled the language to turn what it is into that horrific alien-like monster. Uh, yeah, what it is? It's an umbrella. Um, it's a, <laughs> specifically, it's a broken umbrella. Um, and again, that was I, <clears throat> that was that was an, an image that um, I'd actually a lot of the images in this book, and that that was one of them was was things that I'd had kind of kicking around in my head for a long time, a long time, many years in some cases, and the idea of uh, broken umbrellas as a as a kind of a, you know as a kind of grotesque creature was just because you know every time it rains in London, and and I'm you know I'm sure other cities as well. Uh, you know, loads and loads of people's umbrellas, you know, break and they just get discarded. And when you when you look, you know, when you're walking around London in the rain, the um the the, the pavements are kind of dotted with these very strange things. Which you know, a broken umbrella looks like a kind of like some weird coagulum of like uh, a crow, a dead crow, and some kind of cyborgy robot. And you know, it's got all this kind of metal ribs and things, and leather and flaps and so on. And I just thought there was something. It looks like a very grotesque sort of mixture of the of of of, of the the artifact and the organic. And I just thought they were they they just looked really cool. So for many years, I'd had this notion about like. A flock of broken umbrellas, and you know what they would do, and what the um, what the what the umbrellas would, you know, where they would want to go, and so on, um, and why. And so, in this particular book, I just kind of took that further, and I I, I was able to kind of in, indulge that idea. And so, uh, yeah, the um, you know the 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 idea of uh, you know flocks of broken umbrellas, and and where they end up going is where all the kind of disc- the discards go and the, the the rubbish and the trash goes which is on london so so they they they're just kind of one piece of animate garbage among many but they're i think for me the most uh the most kind of um scary <laughs> this brings up this idea that you create called moil Mm. which is what much of un-London is based on. This is a really fascinating idea and, and has a lot of interesting implications. And I'm wondering if you think those implications are, are lost on, on the younger readers. or, or Tell us a little bit. To what is Moyle? Moyle, Moyle is a, a category of stuff which stands for mildly obsolete in London, um, uh, Moyle. And it's 
basically things which are broken, if, if the idea being if you leave things that are broken uh, just alone, you throw them away, eventually they kind of seep through the fabric of reality into un-London. And in un-London, um, the, those things which are broken and thrown away have a kind of new lease of life. And they have a new lease of life in various ways. Some of them literally become you know, animate and, and, and wander around. Some of them uh, new... New, and this, I suspect, is where you're talking about the sort of subtext. You know, um, new new uses are found for them. So you have like moil houses in London, which are just houses made of uh, where the bricks are old record players and you know CDs and uh, washing machines and so on. Um, and so you have this kind of patchwork of trash turned into a house. Um, and uh, uh, in terms of, I mean, you know, you, you tell me if I've got the right idea, but I suspect you're talking about, you know, notions of kind of reusing old things and so sure, on. Sure, sure. Well, the thing is, you're right to the extent that inevitably there, there is, I suppose, a certain, the ramifications of some of the kind of monsters and some of, you know, ideas like Moyle in the book are a kind of ecological themes and notions of recycling and so on and so forth. But um, you say, you know, do I think that'll pass kids by? Um well, for a start, you know, the purpose of the book is not to instill those ideas. The purpose of the book <laughs> is to tell a cool story with monsters. You know, <laughs> good. So if if the if the if mission the, accomplished. <laughs> so if children read it and they don't come away with any sort of you know ecological ideas, I'm really not bothered. You know, that's not what it was for. You know, and if I want to make a an argument about ecology or politics or anything, I'll just do so. You know, so this was a story that is self-contained. You know, of course, that doesn't mean I'm not interested in those ideas, and and I I, I fully see the kind of the ramifications. And if that's the kind of thing that interests some people, and they find a certain texture in the book which they which they enjoy or they want to argue with, then that's great. That's all to the good. But you want to kind of have your cake and eat it. That those those textures are there for people who who do are, who are interested in them. But that if you're not interested, then the story is 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 its own end as well. And I would also really want to stress that there's a the the, the line of causality here is is absolutely not that I set out by thinking. I want to tell a children's story which has a kind of, you know, strong theme about recycling. What can I do? What happens is I have always been really fascinated, uh, ever since I was very young, with trash landscapes. Always. Not because I think of what what they mean, but because of how they look. I just think they're extraordinary. They have a kind of beauty, a grotesque beauty, but, uh, you know, amazing. And so, you know, and the idea of like monsters made of rubbish and, you know, intelligent, you know, clouds of pollution and that kind of thing. I thought that was just a really cool, grotesque idea. So I start with that, and I say, you know, I want Unlondon to be, I want Unlondon to be a, you know, an ab city full of these extraordinary kind of reconfigured trash, you know. And then from there, I sort of thought, well, you know, one of the ideas that that throws up is certain ideas about ecology and so on. So maybe I'll play around with that. But that came after. I start with the grotesque, and then the themes follow. And because I'm known as a political writer, no one ever believes that. But it is, it is the truth. I start with the grotesque and then the themes, you know. Well, I, actually, I think that's pretty evident because this book really is – it's a ripping yarn. And, well, and the monsters are, are just fantastic and it really catches you up. And this brings me to a point uh, I wanted to ask about. You do some really interesting thing too with, with mix, mixing different levels and different sorts of, of myths in here. And, and what what – I was what struck me most was was Rosa the bus driver. Hmm. Uh, am I right in thinking that this is maybe an allusion to Rosa Parks? Do you know what? I'm I'm sorry to be disappointing, but actually not. Oh, no, really? I mean, but, oh, at least not consciously. I mean, whenever I'm asked about, you know, was this an allusion to such and such, I always feel. Um, I always, I always want to sort of answer. You know, I can only tell you what was consciously in my own mind, but you know, writers consciousnesses of their own books are you know you know deeply flawed instruments you know and i think you know writers very often do not by any means have the best idea of what's going on in their own work and sometimes i think writers are you know categorically wrong about their own books and what they think they're doing and what they're actually doing are two completely different things um so i can only say to you that at a conscious level i was not thinking about rosa parks at that point i i was think i i, I like London buses. I like the name Rosa, um, and uh, you know, and and um, I, it it was it was just a kind of a nice setup. But it would be 
it would be foolish of me to say that that was categorically not going on somewhere in my mind. But I can I can only speak for the conscious, the forebrain. Tell us a little bit. Uh, let's talk about uh, language in this book, which is really fun, and, and it's a really important part. Um, in the American edition, you, you give a, a warning about the, the Britisms, and we, we get a list of those at the back. Is that Presumably that's not in the British edition. No, it's not. I mean, it, it's, um, it's constantly, it fascinates me all the time the extent to which, you know, uh, British English and American English, although we, you know, we mostly understand each other fine, there are, I think there are many more differences than people uh, generally think. Um, and, you know, I'm constantly coming across words that you don't use, that we do use, and vice versa. And also, you know, really strange little phrases that we do share for no discernible reason. And then what seem to me to be quite straightforward phrases we don't share. So when I was, uh, you know, when I was finishing this, we, you know, I spoke to the publisher, the editor, and he went through and made a list of the words that he thought uh, particularly younger readers in the States would maybe not understand. Um, you know, for example, what we call an estate in a, in a city, uh, you call a housing project, you know. And I couldn't use the term housing project because it's so American. Uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't ring true for London. But I know if I said estate without explaining, then some readers might think it's like a big country house, you know, and that would have given very much the wrong idea. So we, we put stuff like that in the glossary. And there were there were two phrases which we actually did change for the American edition, which is the word flashlight, which we don't use. We use torch. But I, I gather that would make people think of kind of burning brands. And that's not not the idea. And the word repel, um, as in to repel down a wall. We don't repel, we abseil. Oh, and those were the two words that we changed. That and all the spellings, obviously. But <laughs> you also have a lot of fun with neologisms and, and um, just shifting words around, like uh, schwazi versus mm. schwazi. Tell us a little bit about creating some of these neologisms and and just bringing language to life. Well, I like I like um, inventing words. I always have, and I like inventing words that have a kind of that do have an internal logic. Um, but, you know, so I don't just, you know, pluck phonemes out of the air. They are, you know, they have a kind of etymology, um, but they, uh, but they, you know, but they're also, you know, invented. And, I, you know, probably my favorite in this book is um, an arachnophenestronaut, which is somebody <laughs> who travels through a spider window, uh, you know, which, um, you know, and, and it's a very, you know, it's very easy to, to to, to invent, it's arachno, fenestra, naught. You know, each 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 component, you know, means something means means what it you know means. Spider, window, traveler. Um, it's something I've done with all the books. Is is invent you know neologisms and so on. Um, and in this one, uh, you know, I, I definitely kind of indulged in a lot of wordplay. Sometimes really grown worthy puns you know i like puns stupid puns and i sort of so there's a lot of punning which i then took very literally and sort of you know um you know like a kind of a bad pun but then you treat it as if it's a kind of real taxonomic category or something and you sort of uh you know sort of invent a creature based on a misheard word that kind of thing um and and in terms of the you know the word the, the inventions like moil like arachnophenestronaut things like that i mean the intention is to make something which which makes reasonable sense for the world you've created but which has enough playfulness in it that readers will maybe get a kick out of them i love that you also literally bring language to life mm. I, in, in the in talk in the talk lands tell us a little bit about the the utterlings there's, that's a section in the book where there's a character who, um, Mr. Speaker, who every word that he speaks become it, it, it sort of is made flesh as a kind of, as a sort of unique, strange, mouthless animal. Um, so when he speaks, he becomes sort of these these creatures drop out of his mouth, and he becomes surrounded by these kind of uh, the the basically living words. Um, and that was. I mean that was again that was an idea I'd had for a very long time a very long time and and these are these are called the utterlings the, those words um and partly you know again we've talked about the kind of relationship between the grotesque and ideas and themes you know I started off with this this idea of the kind of the the anim, you know the word made into an animal um and then it also sort of what that allowed me to do was have a kind of playful but but fairly serious sort of debate and discussion about 
you know the philosophy of language and there's a there's a scene in which one you know the the the, the protagonist argues with with mr speaker about the 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 utterlings and what they can do and what, and what they can't do and so on and that's actually me kind of having a sort of you know having a little discussion about what language is and the way we use language and how language works and the extent to which it's communal the extent to which we control it you know that kind of thing and as i always say as i said before i mean the idea is you know for for people who are interested in you know the philosophy of language that section is a kind of you know has some stuff that i'm you know i'd, I'd like to sort of you know talk talk about you know and it has a couple of references to quite specific philosophers in it which i think mm-hmm. people who are interested in that stuff might spot but for those you know many thousands who who are who that isn't their draw it's also i just think a cool idea you know words made flesh and this guy who you know every every time he speaks these strange animals drop out of his mouth so yeah that's one of my favorite scenes tell us a little bit about the philosophers behind that that you you had huh. in mind that were born out of your grotesque imagination? Uh, well, I mean, for example, just to give you one example, and I do really stress, because this is going to sound incredibly kind of dry and professorial, I really stress that this is, you know, this is not necessary for the enjoyment of the scene. This is no. purely for the, that tiny minority of, of, of readers who are going to be interested in it. But there's a point at which, um, during the argument, the, um, the protagonist says, uh, you know, if you if you shout across a road at your friend and you shout "Hey you," and the wrong person turns round, and you know she's she's using this to illustrate a, a point about how language isn't always under our control, even our own language, um, and that's actually a, a reference to a fairly uh, well-known uh, sort of philosophical political argument by the um, the French um, philosopher Althusser, um, where he's talking about ideology and his concept of interpolation. Um, so for those who are interested in that kind of thing, there's an Althusser joke in the, in that chapter. But for those many who aren't, there's also, you know, cool animal words. I, I'm with the cool animal words. Excellent. Tell us a little... I'm with both. You see, <laughs> yeah. um, tell us a little bit about the, the book steps. I, I love the scenes with in, with the book steps and, and the, the book tunnel. This is more... There seems a, a point in this book where you really just, like, delve into books and language. And is this something you felt that when you were writing it? Too? Yeah, well, I mean, partly, you know, when when you have a thing which is set in, in a fantasy world, one of the big questions is, you know, how do you get your protagonist from our world to the fantasy? What What is the nature of the portal? You know, how do they go through? How do they cross over? And there's various different ways that they cross over in this in this book. But one of the ways they cross over is um by what are called book steps and and story ladders and what that is is uh basically if you if you sort of start if you if you take a bookshelf and you start climbing on it treating it like a ladder the idea being that you 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 just sort of keep going up and 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 that you pass through a realm of very strange books and then you emerge in 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 a in a, in a very different world um and Partly what that was was an idea that, you know, I, I just, I like the idea of, I always, as a kid, because you could never reach the top shelf of the books as a kid. You could never reach, the, you know, the, the, the books on the top shelf. And um, the, there was always this idea of, you know, just kind of clambering up to get them, but you weren't quite sure if the shelves would take your weight and all that kind of thing. And partly because, you know, so much of my youth was spent reading books in libraries and getting this incredible pleasure out of kind of, uh, you know, reading these, um, you know, these kind of fantastic worlds. And you quite often hear that people saying that, you know, books and libraries in particular, um, you know, are gateways to other worlds for children. And so I wanted to say, well, OK, let's take that literally. You know, let's kind of literalize that idea and say that, you know, you literally can use books and bookshelves as a, as a, as a ladder out of, you know, uh, to, to kind of get out into a, into a fantasy world. So it is something which is, there is obviously that kind of metaphor of you know um of of traveling through books um but i hope it's not too heavy-handed it's it's also intended to just be you know an interesting scene with a character you know going through a strange universe of bookshelves i discovered after i'd written it actually that 
Arthur Machen, the the great sort of English, um, sort of uh, the great British sort of uh, Gothic fiction writer of the of the early twentieth century, when he lived in a garret in London, he didn't have enough bookshelves. So one of the things he did was he he had a little ladder out onto his roof, and he used to use the steps of the ladder as a bookshelf, and he used to fill his his ladder steps with his books, uh, which I was really delighted by because it felt like a kind of a kind of back reference to history of this idea, you know, a ladder used as a bookshelf um, and vice versa. So so that was the idea behind that. Let's talk a little bit about the illustrations. Mm. When you created them, did you write the text first and then create the illustrations? I did, um, but I always had a very strong visual sense of many of the scenes um, because I think very visually and because I tend to sketch as I go along. I tend to do quite a lot of doodles and try and kind of get things clear in my head through these illustrations um and what happened was when i finished the book and i gave it to my publishers both here and in britain they both said you know well we're going to get this illustrated um and because i'd already done some illustrations by that time because i tend to draw most of the things i write um including my adult novels um but i'd never sort of put them out there for publication before and so when they said they were going to get it illustrated i quite shyly said well you know if you're interested, I, you know, I have a few pictures that you can look at. And so they took a look at them. But I was, I was very concerned that it not look like a vanity project, because I wasn't used to, you know, putting my my illustrations out there. So when we were talking about it, I was very adamant with the publishers, at all points that they didn't have to use them. This wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to mind if they said that they they didn't like the illustrations, that, you know, it it wasn't a, you know, a a condition for, you know, for for publishing anything like that. But they they both sort of, you know, they they liked them. So uh, with with some trepidation and and also great, you know, excitement, I sort of said, okay, well, you know, and I I did several more. And now they're out there, They're, they're in the text. One of the things that's interesting about the illustrations is you use them to to tell the story, uh, parts of the story that you're not telling in the text to foreshadow. And I'm thinking about just the way that some of the characters look, even though we're hearing kind of good things about the characters on the page. When we look at the picture, go, oh, my God. Yeah. Well, there's, 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 there's one that I, I think I can th- I know the scene you're talking about. And th- there's one picture which... Um, you know, I think when you first see it, um, I'm hoping that it's relatively ambiguous, you know, yeah. but it, it fairly clearly, when you then later on discover things that do happen and you look back, you can maybe see the seeds of, you know, you know, your discovery there as well. I mean, I was quite careful with the pictures. So if you go through, you notice, for example, none of the main characters are ever drawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I only, I tended to illustrate either um, things that were happening sort of, you know, in the corner of the page, as it were, or relatively minor characters, um, the actual, you know, sort of second row characters, the actual the actual kind of core of main characters don't really get illustrated. And part of the reason for that was I didn't want to kind of tie it down in the reader's head so that, you know, they, they, they had to consider Zana or Deba as looking a certain way. So I wanted to kind of keep a certain kind of freedom for their own mind. And, and also because I think the idea for illustrations is to be should be to be sort of suggestive and pique your interest as much as to be authoritative and sort of close things down. So that's why it's quite often the kind of slightly less crucial thing that gets the big illustration. It's meant to be sort of partly tantalizing. Yeah. Except the utterlings. I had to draw all the utterlings because that was just too much fun. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm glad you focused on the monsters and the kind of mm. the, the weird grotesqueries because that's, that's where where my interests lie. Absolutely, and that's also more fun to draw. I imagine so. Uh, one thing that's interesting about this book is that, is that you combine wonder and terror, that it's, and you do it quite effectively. There's a scene on uh, the roof world. First off, roof world. Christopher Fowler? Yes, but not just him. I mean, no. the, you know, the idea of people running across roofs and living in the roofs as a kind of alternative landscape is... Roof world is obviously the most you know the, the the most sustained, but it's a it's an idea that's been done in in many many different fantasy books. Well, that it sent me running f- to my bookshelves to see if I could find the damn thing again. Mm. Uh, I, tell us a little bit about this kind of uh, I think dichotomy and, and the similarity with the wonder and terror. You have these light bulb insects, and you have something that that involves you know a, a basket of fruit, shall we say, mm, that mm. is beautiful. These things are beautiful and terrifying at once well i'm 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 glad you think so i mean certainly that's the idea i wanted some of the creatures 
I mean, my 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 favorite example is probably the black, you know, the black windows, which are intended to be both, you know, if you stop and you take a moment, the very idea, you know, of the black window is kind of completely ludicrous. But within the context of the book, it is also meant to be genuinely quite frightening, you know, um, when it when it when it occurs, you know, when when that scene happens. And um, I think what I wanted to do was. Uh, as as a kid, I really and and indeed now, but you know, as a younger reader, I I really enjoyed being frightened. I enjoyed being scared by scary books, by gothic books, by you know, by monsters. And I worry sometimes that some uh, children's sort of fiction and films and so on um, is a little bit nervous of of trying to be scary, and 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 so quite often it you know the villains or whatever will be kind of um, almost comedic almost played for laughs rather than trying to be kind of genuinely frightening and I and I, I think I mean there are of course there are exceptions to this and there are genuinely scary stuff but but I, I really I don't think one should have any kind of anxiety about you know trying to be really scary at times and 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 so I wanted to have some monsters in there that you know, even if looked at with a kind of you know, with 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 one eye slightly closed, you could see that they were a really sort of silly idea or a really sort of there was a joke behind them or whatever. They also are played quite straight. They're played quite seriously as genuinely, you know, sort of frightening, frightening creatures. And in terms of the kind of you know the the relation between you know beauty and terror, I mean, it's all you know sort of a sub subspecies of awe, isn't it? And awe is is a very ambivalent emotion because it can go either way very easily. One thing that you mentioned in this book is um, uh, an occult war in London, and I'm wondering if this is a, a reference to the the Dion Fortune. Uh, again, not not specifically. Because oh. it's so an interesting. You're, you're making the you know the, the books. It's obviously I'm, I'm I'm much less of an interesting referential writer than you think I am. I you know all these things that you think I'm referencing, I'm just not. At least not consciously. I mean, there are plenty of references in the book, but um, not that specifically. No. But, I mean, again, you know, the idea of the kind of hidden occult war is not. You know, I mean, it's been used many times. Um, so I was quite aware that there was a sort of. A tradition of that idea, but uh, not that specifically. Let's talk a little bit about your short story collection, Looking for Jake. It's one of the things that you have in there is a story called On the Way to the Front. It's uh, a graphic story, um, illustrated. And I'm wondering, would you write a, a, a Batman story if they asked you? Um, I would. Cer- I would certainly consider it. Yeah. I mean that that comic that you're talking about is mm-hmm. um uh, done by liam sharp the uh, illustrator it's a fa- fantastic piece of work um i know a lot of, <laughs> a lot of readers didn't really like that comic i thought it was fantastic and i still do i loved it oh, it's beautiful well thank you I, yeah. I i think i mean his art is superb and 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 I, I really like that piece i no, i mean i'm very interested in writing for comics and i have actually sort of spoken about this to various comic people um and you know it's been mooted about you know writing both in a sort of you know, including for some kind of, you know, fairly, you know, big classic figures like, you know, the, the ones you're talking about. But um, obviously, you know, and perfectly understandably, there are fairly sharp constraints on what you can do if you're dealing with a big, you know, big franchise character. So uh, and wh- I, I, I have no objection in principle. Um, uh, you know, I think, I, you know, I'd have to be able to come up with I wouldn't say yes, just on principle and then you know, and then and then work out the details afterwards. What I would want to do is I would want to say, well, here's some ideas for stories. Are you going to be happy with those? Are you going to let you know? Is that going to work for you? Because because if you do stuff in comics, you're collaborating, and it has to be a collaboration. You know, which all the partners are are happy with. You know, so so I'm very open to the idea, but you know, inevitably there's more kind of give and take involved. And you know, if if we could come up with something that kept everyone sort of happy and that felt like it was still in my voice, then yes, I'd be delighted. I mean, I grew up on these things, so yeah. One of the kind of sub-themes in the, the stories uh, in Looking for Jake is you, you have some kind of interesting uh, versions of the apocalypse. Mm. You have a Borgesian apocalypse, and, and you have what you call, and I love this this phrase, an, an inexact apocalypse. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. I love that idea. Well, I mean, as a general theme, the idea of the kind of the post-apocalypse narrative is something that um, I've always I've always loved. It's a you know it, it's a fairly standard 
idea, you know, be it a nuclear war, be it a, some sort of magical meltdown. And I really, I really enjoy that. And I wanted to write some stories that were sort of part of that tradition, homages to that. Um, the, the, the inexact apocalypse story is the title story, which is looking for Jake itself. And it, it's, it's, it's the only thing I've ever written that is uh, taken almost without any filigrees at all from a dream. That entire story was dream, really? more or less beginning to end. Yeah, um, not that phrase. I have to say that oh. phrase was <laughs> I came up with afterwards. But, but yeah, I mean, it's the only time I, I don't tend to remember my dreams except in fragments. But that was one of the exceptions, and that story was, um, uh, you know, you know, as I say, more or less, more or less, simply a, a transcription of a dream. And I, 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 I just like the idea of, you know, doing a, a kind of a post-apocalypse story but not really specifying exactly what the apocalypse was and 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 still trying to do the story i just thought that was an interesting idea but it was an idea because of the dream i have to say so i can't take credit my my subconscious has to take credit one story that i i really liked was reports of certain events in london mm. and the reason that kind of stuck in my mind was i i just talked to uh, rudy rucker and he has this genre of fiction he calls transrealism. And mm. here is an absolutely perfect example of transrealism. Was this written with Rudy Rucker in mind, or no? I mean, <laughs> it's it's an idea. You know, the, the you know the central the central idea behind reports of certain events in London. I mean, what actually one of the one of the spurs for that story because that story features me as a character. It opens with you know China Mieville receiving some mail. Um, and what, the story opens with me complaining about the fact that my mail is clearly being opened en route. Um, and uh, this this was true. I mean, I went through a period a few years ago when uh, particularly things that were coming internationally, just everything, I, I you know, not everything, but a lot of the stuff I got looked to me quite clearly to have been opened and checked up en route. And I was in this kind of outrage and sort of, uh, you know, not not knowing what to do about this. Um, and that kind of that kind of gave me the idea of sort of finding yourself in in the middle of a kind of fight or war or debate uh, between forces that neither of which you really understood so that you were kind of caught in the middle of something strange kind of by accident or po possibly by accident. And then um, and it's very unusual for me to use those kind of techniques of sort of using myself as a character and so on that kind of um I, I don't tend to do that kind of thing, but for that story, it was absolutely right. Um, and then the and then and then much of the rest of it is you know about the kind of the shifting city and so on. You know, sort of not being able to kind of map the city st in a stable fashion and so on. These are the kind of concerns I you know I always have, um, and and just kind of made, you know written with with a certain amount of uh, you know sort of streets that aren't always where you think they are and that move around and so on. The, the, you know, it was just written with a kind of uh, uh, kind of literalizing that anxiety in a very sort of clear way. In terms of the whole kind of transrealist thing and so on, I mean, I like, I like schools and movements and polemics and manifestos. I think they're fun. I think they're interesting, and I like the way genre fiction, science fiction, fantasy, horror throws up these plethora of, you know, interstitial arts, transrealism, new weird, uh, you, you know, um, and and it throws them up and swallows them again, rap bastards, you know, and so on and so on and so on. And I think the key is with all of them, you know, not to take them too seriously, but then at the same time, not to be kind of narrowly, pompously sectarian about them. They're, they're provocations, they're ways of thinking about things. So, you know, bring it on. I'm interested also in Tis the Season. Mm. Tell us a little bit about the the premise of that story, and I'm wondering if this is a digital rights management time for you. <laughs> it is, no, it is the season's a, a story written set in the near future at a time when um, everything to do with Christmas has become uh, copyrighted and trademarked, so that you can't use, you can't celebrate Christmas, you can't have a Christmas tree. Uh, Christmas has a little TM next to it. Um, and uh, you can't, you know, put it, you know, putting presents under trees is, um, is, is, is proprietary. You can't, you know, you no, you don't have the right to, it's called, if you don't have a license to do that, it's called um, subarboreal giftery and it's a, it's a crime. So it's just, it's just taking the kind of commodification of everything to a kind of ridiculous extreme. I was asked by a left-wing magazine to write 
a socialist review to write a to write a Christmas story, and I really it appealed to me enormously the idea of trying to write, you know, a kind of you know a a sort of genuine warm-hearted Christmas story for a kind of militant secular left-wing magazine. I thought that was delightful. Um, that was also you know that took political ideas but didn't treat them too po-facedly. So it's just an attempt to write a kind of light-hearted. Um, uh, sort of polemical uh, Christmas story um, and the whole issue of commodification and, and, and the sort of, um, you know, the copywriting of everything and patenting of everything, you know, and that sort of thing is is a, you know, intellectual property and so on, you know, is, is of great concern to me as it is of, of many people. And I just wanted to kind of, um, you know, play with the sort of, uh, play with that in a kind of, in a, in a, in a light hearted, but, you know, a light hearted manner, but, you know, it's a serious issue underneath. You'll be attending the H.P. Lovecraft conference, Weird Realism, of Lovecraft in Theory. Tell us a little bit about this and what drew you to it. Well, I was asked by one of the organizers who runs a blog called K-Punk. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he and various other sort of uh, philosophers and, and um, theorists and so on, um, there's a, it's this one-day event in, in London in next month. And basically, I mean, I really like Lovecraft and I'm very interested in philosophy and social theory and so on. And there is a small but quite solid kind of uh, tradition of often French theorists, social theorists, philosophy theorists, who are obsessed with Lovecraft. Uh, you know, in, in the kind of Anglo-American tradition, that's quite difficult to believe in some ways because Lovecraft tends to be the preserve of, you know, the weird fiction people and, you know, social theorists and so on on the whole, you know, unless they happen to be horror fans, don't tend to be particularly interested in him. But, you know, for example, you take, you know, uh, writers like Deleuze and Guattari, you know, sort of hugely important in in kind of, uh, you know, sort of radical philosophy of the of the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, their, their books contain loads of references to Lovecraft, you know, um, and, and they use him as a kind of paradigm for thinking about sort of decentering ontology and all sorts of, you know, all sorts of those kind of things. Um, and, and so because I've always been, I don't have a, you know, my background is in, is in social theory um, and, and, and I, you know, I write weird fiction and, and I'm a big admirer of Lovecraft. And so when I was invited to come along to this, I just thought it was a really interesting piece of sort of cross-fertilization. I have to say, in, in much of the continent, it's not quite as odd as it sounds to the sort of Anglo-American ear. Uh, but I'm hoping it'll, you know, start an interesting conversation, as they say. Well, um, Uelebeck's Lovecraft piece was just published by McSweeney's Press here in the U.S., and it was it was really a fascinating little book, and, and I think that he he is starting to and it was recently published by the American Library, so he's starting yeah. to there the perceptions of of this writer is really starting to shift. That's right. I, I did I did an introduction to the Mountains of Madness, which was um, which which I, I drew on the Welbeck um, uh, uh, essay a fair bit. I thought it was a very very interesting piece of work, um, uh, and you know the whole question of the relationship between Lovecraft's grotesque and his racism and you know whether or not that you know you have to sort of take that very seriously but then the question of whether or not that kind of delegitimates his fiction which um i I think it does not i think the fiction is magnificent but it is also predicated on a certain kind of racism and you have to just deal with that Uh, and welbeck i think does a brilliant job of of discussing that and he's certainly you know one of the figures who i'm quite sure will come up at this at this discussion Tell us a little bit about what's in store for you. And I'm particularly interested. Your work is so visual. Are there any movies? Is somebody going to attempt to film one of your things? Well, I mean, I'm I'm very, I mean, I, I hope so. I like the idea. Um, I, I mean, I grew up on movies, so, you know, I, I would, I'd be very interested in that. And certainly there are, uh, there are discussions, let's put it that way. But I think, you know, I mean, and I think, you know, Unlondon in particular, I think would, I think would translate very nicely into film, and I'd be interested in that. But I think, um, I think if you're if you're talking about that kind of translation, you uh, it, it is sensible to be quite sort of cautious about setting your heart on anything, because you'll probably be disappointed. So at this, you know, until I'm in a movie theater and the lights are going down, and a, and and you know, a screen is coming up that says, you know. Uh, um, you know, in, from the story by China Mieville, I'll, I'll I'll wait. But certainly, one of my one of my short stories is is currently um, sort of under development, and uh, and 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 there are certain there are discussions going on about some of the other stuff too. 
I'm, I'm, I'm very open to it. Okay. Although I would also, I mean, particularly with the Bass Lag books, I would, I would be quite anxious about what kind of job they would do. I, I would, I, I, I worry that I would be too anxious about them being sort of faithful, because I think if you're very worried about people being faithful, you're, you know, you're probably, you, you may well be disappointed. So I am open. I'm very open to it, but uh, I'd want to sort of talk about it quite carefully and work out what their plans were and so on. What about your next book? Well, I'm working on, on something at the moment which is um, set in the real world, but, you know, of course, with various, you know, monsters and fantastic elements. Um, and that's that's written, that's another adult book. Um, and then there are various possibilities for what I might do after that. And I would very much like to do another another YA book. I mean, I really mm-hmm. I enjoyed writing on London hugely, and the response has mostly been very, very nice. So... Uh, I would. I fully intend to do another, possibly set in the same universe, because um, there's plenty of room for more exploration. Uh, yes, we've been speaking with China Mieville. His new novel is Unlondone. Thank you for joining me, China. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.